Hello and welcome to Hollywood, the podcast that explores the stories behind history's greatest storytellers. I'm your host, Key Whiskey, and this is the sixth and final installment of our series titled Writers Under the Influence, featuring authors whose lives and careers are, in the popular imagination, entangled with their relationships to substances. See this cute little vial here? It's crack, rock cocaine. Not only are barbiturates dangerous to his nervous system, but they destroy the inner resources. This is your brain on drugs. But the grim specters of heroin, marijuana, and cocaine. Oh, devil ether. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. hell. Over the last six episodes, we've examined authors who were addicted to, or at least dabbled in, cocaine, LSD, opium, heroin, and amphetamines. In this bonus episode, we're going to look at an author who did not limit himself to any particular drug, and in fact made a name for himself consuming every kind of drug and booze imaginable. Hunter S. Thompson gloried in excess and the depth of his appetite was legendary. He's a fitting choice to close out our series, and not only because he seems like the biggest, baddest, booze-swilling, drug-loving author of all time, but because he represents the kind of author we seldom see anymore. He calls up a time, pre-radio and pre-television, when authors were the celebrities of Western culture. He achieved a level of fame that today is reserved only for Hollywood movie stars, Hot 100 pop stars and Instagram influencers, and brought the figure of the author back to the top of the cultural food chain. He became such an icon that people who had never even read his books and articles knew of him. But the bigger his legend grew, the less, it seemed, the world cared to know the real hunter. His public persona began as a fun court jester act but ultimately became a millstone around his neck, an illusion to live up to every time he stepped outside, even when it was killing him. Hunter Stockton Thompson was born on July 18, 1937, in Louisville, Kentucky. He was the oldest of three sons in a solidly middle-class family. His father, Jack Thompson, was a World War I veteran and an insurance salesman. His mother, Virginia, was a housewife. The Thompsons lived in a bungalow surrounded by grand old trees in a historic neighborhood called the Cherokee Triangle. It was the kind of suburb in which people would sit on their porches and chat to the people who passed by. Everybody knew everybody. Hunter was a popular, charismatic child with a keen appetite for adventure and a dark sense of humor, which often led him into trouble. He referred to himself as Billy the Kid of Louisville, he was the kind of kid disliked by the other boys' parents, and they warned their boys to steer clear of him. But that didn't stop the kids from seeking out Hunter. His mother recalled how on most school mornings, the other kids in the neighborhood would ride up and park their bikes outside the house, waiting for Hunter to finish his breakfast so they could follow him to school. He was a magnet, a natural-born leader, and he had such a powerful sway over his fellow students at school 
that his principal called him a little Hitler. Hunter's first run-in with trouble came when he was nine years old. Two FBI agents knocked on the door to accuse Hunter of destroying a federal mailbox. They claimed to have witnesses, but Hunter called their bluff and denied any wrongdoing. The FBI agents went away. Hunter's parents sighed with relief and patted him on the back, glad to hear he hadn't been mixed up in any sort of prank. Of course, Hunter had damaged the mailbox, along with his friends, but none of them had come forward to knock on the others. It was a pivotal moment in Hunter's development. Just like that, he had gotten away with committing his first crime. When he wasn't being a menace around the neighborhood with his mates, Hunter was absolutely mad for sports. In the days before Ritalin and video games, sport was the only way to kill time. Like his father, Hunter loved baseball and played in a church-sponsored league where he made a name for himself as a natural batsman. It's very possible Hunter could have gone on to forge a career playing America's favorite game if it wasn't for a physical disability that emerged as he grew. He had one leg shorter than the other, and although the anomaly slowed him down on the sand lot, it gave him his distinctively cool, lopsided walk. In 1952, just a few days out from Hunter's 15th birthday, his father Jack died after suffering from myasthenia gravis, an autoimmune disease that occurs when the immune system attacks the body's own tissues and causes weakness of the skeletal muscles. His hospitalization, diagnosis and eventual death occurred all in the space of three months. The newly widowed Virginia took Jack's death incredibly hard. As the sole provider of the household, she didn't have the luxury to mourn her husband. She had to re-enter the workforce and quickly found work as the head librarian at the Louisville Free Public Library. Struggling with sudden single parenthood and unresolved grief, Virginia became an alcoholic. As the oldest child, Hunter became, quote, a man of the family and felt pressure to help raise his younger brothers, James and Davison, especially since his mother was so often drunk. He despised his mother's drinking, although it didn't stop him eventually following suit. Jack Thompson had been a strict disciplinarian in life who kept Hunter mostly in check, but in his absence, Hunter was left to run riot. Inspired by the likes of Marlon Brando in the movie, The Wild One, he and his friends formed a sort of gang and terrorized the town, taunting other kids with BB guns, feigning epileptic fits to freak out adults, getting into fistfights, trashing pool halls, drinking beer, cruising the neighborhood in Hunter's mum's car, and shoplifting. The only time they really behaved themselves was when they went to the library. It was an unexpected hangout spot for the gang, but it was Hunter's favorite place. He inherited his love of reading from his mother and forced it on the rest of the group. As the other boys sat flipping through comics and fantasy paperbacks, Hunter dove into books by authors his mother recommended, like Mark Twain, Jack London, and George Orwell. It was at the library where he first read about journalism and began to consider it as a career. His love for reading naturally translated into a love for writing. Hunter's teachers were impressed by his school essays. 
Aside from the occasional descent into obscenity, Hunter had a startlingly assertive style and demonstrated real promise. In 1954, Hunter was recommended for a transfer to a nearby college preparatory school called Louisville Male High, one of the top academies in Kentucky. Here, he was inducted into the Athenium Literary Association, ALA, an exclusive club mostly populated by the ultra-elite, wealthy kids of Louisville. The ALA organized social events and published a literary yearbook called The Spectator, to which members would contribute essays and editorials. One of Hunter's essays published in The Spectator won third prize in the Nettle Roth contest. With his wit and charisma, 17-year-old Hunter fit in well, and though he lacked the affluent background of the other ALA members, he shared their proclivity for trouble. In 1955, Hunter was charged as an accessory in a robbery. He and two friends were in a car late one night coasting through Cherokee Park when they passed by another vehicle with two necking couples inside. The driver of Hunter's car, the son of a prominent lawyer, circled back and pulled over. The three of them got out and approached the other car and demanded the occupant's wallets. When the two couples resisted, Hunter's friend, known only as Joe, allegedly threatened to rape the women. Even if they had gotten away with it, the stunt paid up a measly $8, which equates to about $70 today. Hunter didn't take any of the money himself, but because of his previous convictions for underage drinking and destruction of property, and his family's lack of social prominence, he suffered the worst fate. While one friend was acquitted, and the other merely fined, the juvenile court judge sentenced Hunter to 60 days in Jefferson County Jail. He was kicked out of the Athenium Literary Association and missed his high school graduation. After serving 30 days, Hunter's lawyer waged a deal for his early release on the condition he enlist. Aware all his friends were off to Ivy League schools and with no future plans in store, Hunter joined the US Air Force. He was assigned to the Elgin Air Force Base in Fort Walton, Florida, where Cold War doomsday preparations were fully underway. Still keen to write, Hunter lied about having been the editor of his high school newspaper and scored a job as a sports editor for the base newspaper, The Command Career. Most his articles were pretty standard, but he always found a way to sneak in a satiric jibe at commanding officers. While on furlough weekends, Hunter mingled with the upper crust cafe society in the city of Fort Walton and got himself several other jobs, including an assignment writing for a professional wrestling newsletter and another sports column in the local civilian newspaper, The Playground News. Since holding down a job outside of the Air Force was a violation of military regulation, Hunter wrote under a pseudonym, Thorne Stockton. He was well-liked and respected by his peers and superiors, but too often got into a tangle with the rules and his journalistic agenda. After finding out a quarterback star was finagling special treatment from the Air Force top brass so he could sign with a famous NFL team, Hunter broke into base headquarters and stole the discharge report and exposed the story on the front page of the command career. The officers involved were embarrassed. 
the stunt had pushed the envelope too far. Hunter received an early honorable discharge in which his commanding officer wrote, quote, In summary, this airman, though talented, will not be guided by policy. Sometimes his rebel and superior attitude seems to rub off on other airmen staff members. He has little consideration for military bearing or dress and seems to dislike the service and want out as soon as possible. Hunter departed Florida in 1958 with a portfolio of articles to prove he was, indeed, a journalist. For the next several years, Hunter bounced around the country, taking on several different jobs. He worked as a sports editor for a newspaper in Jersey Shore, then went on to New York City and worked as a copyboy for Time magazine. By night, he took short story writing classes at Columbia University as part of their GI Bill program, hoping to speed along his training and sharpen his writing skills. Hunter borrowed a typewriter from the Time magazine offices and typed out F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby and Ernest Hemingway's A Farewell to Arms, word for word. He claimed the unusual method enabled him to learn prose rhythm. After getting fired from Time magazine for insubordination, Hunter lied his way into another job at the Middletown Daily Record by claiming to be college-educated and several years older. He got fired from this job also after arguing with an advertiser and kicking in the office candy machine. Desperate to get out of New York and live someplace warmer, Hunter moved to San Juan, the capital city of Puerto Rico. His girlfriend, Sandra Conklin, soon joined him. They had met back in New York in 1959. She was a blonde Goucher College graduate working at the United Airlines when they'd first connected through a mutual friend. Hunter took a job with the exotic-sounding sport magazine El Sportivo, which he'd been led to believe was the Caribbean's Sports Illustrated. Instead, it turned out to be nothing more than a bowling magazine. Bowling was new to the island country, and Hunter's job was to go out each night and cover bowling in San Juan to stir up interest. Hunter hated working for El Sportivo. Fortunately, he wasn't stuck there for long. The magazine folded just weeks after his arrival. Hunter set his sights on a career at the San Juan Star, an English-language daily newspaper, and wrote a ballsy letter to the editor offering his services. Dear sir, I hear you need a sports editor. If true, perhaps we can work something out. The job interests me for two reasons. A Caribbean location and the fact that it's a new paper. The young editor, William Kennedy, declined Hunter's offer in a rather sarcastic reply. Dear Mr. Thompson, after giving careful consideration to your application, we have decided that for several reasons you would not be happy with us. If we ever get a candy machine or need someone to kick it in, we'll get in touch with you. Which prompted a cheeky response from Hunter. Your letter was cute, my friend and your interpretation of my letter was beautifully typical of the Cretan intellect responsible for the dry rot of the American press. Give my best to your staff. If they are half as cute as you are, your paper will be a whopping success. More letters were exchanged, each more vicious and strange and funny than the next, until somehow the men became good friends. Though he didn't give Hunter a job, William Kennedy happily acted as his editor when Hunter went on to find work as a stringer for several other stateside newspapers. 
Between journo jobs, Hunter worked on two autobiographical novels, Prince Jellyfish, about a boy from Louisville who moves to the big city for work, and The Rum Diary, about an American working for a Puerto Rican newspaper. The Rum Diary wasn't published until 1998, and Prince Jellyfish has never been published. From mid-1962 to mid-1963, Hunter worked as a South American correspondent for the National Observer. His connections back home in the States sent him word that his articles for the Observer were winning high praise throughout the journalism community. Although he wasn't technically on a salary with the Observer, he worked like hell and sent through stories so often that he earned a pretty regular wage. Close to 20 articles were published, covering Peru, Brazil, Bolivia and Ecuador. A portion of the year abroad was also spent living in Rio de Janeiro, where Hunter worked for the only English-language daily newspaper, the Brazil Herald. But the salary was laughable, and Hunter didn't want to be tied down to the one city for long. By late 1962, Hunter and Sandy's long-running, passionate affair grew serious. He stopped his Latin American womanizing, and she came to join him in Rio, just as she had in Puerto Rico. They returned to the US come the new year, got married, and moved into a house just outside of Aspen, Colorado, where their son Juan Fitzgerald was born. Sadly, Sandy was unable to give Juan a sibling. The couple conceived five more times, but three of the pregnancies miscarried, and two produced infants who died shortly after birth. From the Thompson's base in Aspen, Hunter worked freelance, making approximately $100 per article, or about $800 today. Hunter would hunt wild elk so he and Sandy had something to eat, but they barely ate any food aside from that. Some months, they almost didn't make their rent. Hunter grew tired of living paycheck to paycheck and decided he needed to level up his career ambitions if he was going to properly support his family. He took Sandy and Juan and moved to California so he could get steady work writing for the National Observer, and at the same time immerse himself in the hippie culture that was only just beginning to take hold. One of his most interesting assignments came later that year, when he was sent to Ketchum, Idaho to write an essay on Ernest Hemingway, who had shot himself in his Ketchum home three years prior. Hunter was so excited to be visiting the home of one of his favourite authors that he stole a pair of elk antlers that had hung over the front door of the chalet. These antlers were eventually returned to Hemingway's family in 2016. Hunter's big journalism break came in 1965. The American weekly magazine The Nation hired Hunter based off his mildly successful bohemian credentials to write an expose on infamous Los Angeles motorcycle gang, the Hells Angels. They were known for being incredibly dangerous, and most journalists would have backed away from such an assignment. The brave journalists who had previously attempted to write about the gang never quite got close enough to the members to produce raw experiential material. But Hunter, perhaps more wild than he was brave, fit into the gang just fine. He published an article in The Nation in May of 1965, and it was considered the first honest portrayal of the Hells Angels in any major publication. The article generated praise and a book offer from Random House. 
Though the angels paralyzed whole towns with fear, Hunter jumped at the chance to spend a year on the road with them, riding, drinking, partying, and documenting his hair-raising experiences with some of the most notorious members. Hunter compiled his accounts into the book Hell's Angels, A Strange and Terrible Saga. It made the New York Times bestseller list and garnered mass media attention, thrusting Hunter onto the national stage. Up to that point, he had existed on the margins of the writing profession, and so the glare of newfound fame caught him off guard. His life took an upward spin, and for the first time, he realised he was making it as a writer. Not just a journalist, but a writer. Hell's Angels made Hunter S. Thompson, but it came with a price. During his year riding with the gang, he witnessed and experienced some pretty horrific scenes. One night, during a party held at author Ken Kesey's La Honda Ranch, Hunter walked in on a group of angels gang-raping a semi-conscious woman. On another occasion, during a Labor Day weekend beach party, Hunter was getting drunk and stoned in the sand with the angels when a biker named Junkie George started beating his wife to a pulp on the rocks. The couple's dog jumped in to stop the violence, only to have George turn on him as well. Hunter had to intervene. He approached the biker and said, quote, only a punk beats his wife and dog. The gang pounced on Hunter, pummeling his face to a pulp and breaking his ribs. He took a photograph of his bruised and bloodied face to show police, and you could still find the photo online. Later, while recovering in hospital, Hunter decided he didn't want to be involved with the angels anymore. He said, quote, I was finished. The angels had taken me to the edge. There could be no going back now, even if I wanted to. By the time of the beating, Hunter's relationship with the gang had already started to sour. He was on good terms with the more senior and important members, like founding member Sonny Barger, but some of the angels he was less familiar with resented the unforeseen success Hunter achieved after writing about them. During a live television program broadcast through CBC in 1967, Hunter, tongue-tied and perhaps slightly drunk or stoned, is blindsided by the surprise appearance of an angel named Skip Workman, who confronts Hunter, berates his book as trash, and accuses him of exploiting the gang for money. Workman states, well, This guy here is sitting here, he's making a million dollars, and he made it off of us. In truth, at the time this interview aired, the profit of the Hells Angels book sales amounted to a measly $1,900 about $14,000 in today's money. Hunter used the money to buy an abandoned, dilapidated ranch house and some land in Woody Creek, Colorado. He undertook massive renovations and officially named the property Owl Farm, though he affectionately referred to it as his, quote, fortified compound. Hunter was 30 when he and his family moved into Owl Farm. It would be his home for the remainder of his life. As a gun and explosive enthusiast, the remote, secluded location of the farm meant he could get up to all sorts of mischief. Target practicing and hunting and detonating to his heart's content. Oh, and surprise, he also raised peacocks. Hunter S. Thompson was immensely proud of his peacocks, 
keeping between 8 and 19 at any time, each with their own name. He liked to watch them through his windows as they roamed free about his property. Should he spot a fox getting too close to his flock, he would reach for one of the rifles from his eclectic firearms collection and take aim. In the wake of the success of his first book, Hunter, still a freelance journalist, found doors of opportunity opening up all around him. He secured work with various publications, including Scanlon's Monthly Magazine, where he was assigned as a sports writer to cover the Kentucky Derby. Hunter was told to take a photographer with him, but he hated photographers and asked for an illustrator instead. This is how he ended up with Ralph Steadman, a seemingly buttoned-down Welsh illustrator freshly arrived in America from the UK. Their first meeting in Hunter's hometown of Louisville was volatile. Hunter thought Ralph was pompous, and Ralph found Hunter rude and awkward. But after a few hours spent hanging out together in a bar, verbally sparring, their mutual dislike evolved into a mutual understanding. They were both intellectual, artistic, slightly mad, and of course, they were both into drugs. Come Derby Day, Hunter and Ralph took psilocybin, the active ingredient in hallucinogenic mushrooms, then found their seats in the grandstand. They're off in the Kentucky Derby! When the race began and the crowd watched the race, Hunter and Ralph watched the crowd. The drugs distorted their senses and greatly heightened the atmosphere for them. Ralph whipped out his sketchbook and began illustrating the people around them. Fabulously dressed, but hideously intoxicated, waving their money around like lunatics and shouting themselves hoarse. These illustrations perfectly complemented the article Hunter later wrote, called The Kentucky Derby is Decadent and Depraved. The article jettisoned all the unbiased and detached conventions of established journalism practices and presented a manic, grotesque portrait of the greed and affluence of the racegoers. The article then culminates in amusing on how similar the author himself is to the very subjects he is critiquing. A mere three sentences of the 7,000-word piece described the race itself. The actual derby Hunter was sent to report on became but a footnote in the final product. At first, Hunter thought the article was one of his biggest failures. After passing it to a courier boy to submit to his editor, he sunk into a booze-soaked spell of depression and waited for, quote, shit to hit the fan. He resolved to never do drugs again before writing. However, to his surprise, the editor couldn't get enough. Hunter still wasn't convinced. In fact, he was embarrassed to think the piece was going to be in print. But when the article did come out, the phone calls and letters began to pour in. People called it, quote, a breakthrough in journalism, a stroke of genius. Hunter was confused. He thought to himself, quote, What the shit? The cutting edge angle and highly subjective style of decadent and depraved coupled with the rough language and punchy sentences, set the journalism community buzzing. Bill Cardoso, then editor of the Boston Globe, wrote to Hunter to congratulate him on a job well done. He said, quote, This is it. 
This is pure gonzo. If this is a start, keep rolling. Hunter loved the word gonzo. According to Ralph Steadman, from that moment on, Hunter used the word gonzo to describe his writing. 1970 was a big year for Hunter. After shaking up the journalism world, he then turned his attention to Colorado state politics. He ran for Sheriff of Aspen and the surrounding Pitkin County on the Freak Power ticket, which consisted of a group of citizens running for local offices in the hope to unseat the old, conservative politicians and replace them with a progressive government. The Freak Power logo was a double-thumbed fist clutching a peyote button, superimposed over a sheriff's star. Hunter's campaign started as a bit of a joke at first. His promises stretched far beyond the parameters of the job of sheriff, and included ripping up all of Aspen's streets and replacing them with green lawn, decriminalizing personal drug use, punishing dishonest drug dealers, disarming the Aspen police force, and limiting hunting and fishing to locals only. Further, he proposed renaming Aspen to Fat City to ward off investors and developers from further destroying his pristine mountain retreat. During the campaign, Hunter ensured to keep the locals entertained with plenty of stunts. He crashed town hall meetings wearing his trademark Converse All-Stars, released a surreal TV ad that featured him riding a motorbike along a deserted mountain road, and shaved his head so that he could refer to the ultra-conservative incumbent Republican Sheriff Carol D. Whitmire as his, quote, long-haired opponent. At the time, long-haired was a derogatory term used by men like Whitmire to describe suspicious countercultural types, such as hippies, addicts, and criminals. Underneath all the jokes and show, Hunter's campaign actually addressed some pretty serious issues. Police harassment, corruption, unbridled capitalism, environmental threats, and archaic drug laws. Freak power was gaining momentum. As much to his surprise as his opponents, Hunter had a lot of support. And in the end, it took a cabal of Democrats, Republicans, and Independents banding together to take him down. They agreed not to run candidates against each other in certain key elections, thereby consolidating the anti-freak power votes. Hunter lost by 173 votes to his opponent's 204. It was a narrow loss, but Hunter was nonetheless devastated. In a BBC documentary on the campaign, when asked how he felt after the defeat, Hunter said, quote, Oh, it just goes to show that the American dream truly is fucked. Hunter returned to his gonzo style when writing his most famous novel, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Fear and Loathing started out as just a small writing assignment from Sports Illustrated magazine. They wanted Hunter to drive out into the Nevada desert to attend the Mint 400 motorcycle race so he could write up a photograph caption from the event. At the time Sports Illustrated came knocking, Hunter was working in LA on a story for Rolling Stone magazine about Ruben Salazar, a Mexican-American civil rights activist and reporter who had been killed by an LA County Sheriff's deputy during a march against the Vietnam War. Hunter had recently befriended one of Ruben Salazar's pals and co-activists. 
a portly Chicano lawyer named Oscar Acosta. And when he received the Mint 400 assignment, he asked Oscar to accompany him on the drive from LA to Las Vegas. Hunter and Oscar expense accounted a big red convertible, stocked up on every drug known to mankind, and a few that weren't, and set off into the desert on a psychedelic adventure. As mentioned previously, Sports Illustrated only wanted a few paragraphs describing the Mint 400 race, but Hunter came back to them with a 60-page, substance-soaked, out-of-control tale about two men traipsing around Vegas, searching for the American dream. Sports Illustrated rejected the piece, as well as the exorbitant hotel bill. But Rolling Stone scooped it up and published the story across two issues in late 1971. It was then published in book form the following year, under the title Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, A Savage Journey to the Heart of the American Dream. In the wake of the book's critical and commercial success, Hunter realised, just as he had after Kentucky Derby, that his drink and drug-infused approach to writing was working in his favour. He famously said, quote, I hate to advocate drugs, alcohol, and violence, or insanity to anyone, but they've always worked for me. At the end of 1971, Hunter returned to politics, this time only as a spectator, covering the 1972 elections for Rolling Stone magazine. His articles analyzing the campaign, the events and various personalities, were soon after compiled into a book titled Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. Ralph Steadman provided the illustrations. Although Hunter was assigned to follow Senator Edmund Muskie, the early favorite for the Democratic presidential nod, he instead took a shine to historian and idealist George McGovern, who was eventually tapped as the Democratic challenger. But even with Thompson on his side, McGovern crashed and burned. He lost the presidential race to Richard Nixon by a landslide, carrying only one state to Nixon's 49. To this day, Nixon holds the record as having achieved the widest popular vote margin in any presidential election. Since Hunter wasn't trying to become a political journalist full-time, he wasn't afraid to criticise the politicians on the campaign trail, hold their feet to the fire, so to speak. But he saved his most savage takedowns for Richard Nixon, a man for whom his hatred bordered on obsession. In Nixon, Hunter saw everything that could potentially go wrong with America. As writer Timothy Devaney says, Hunter, quote, Since Nixon's sinister ability to really warp the American system in his favor. Even when Nixon died, Hunter wrote a savage eulogy in Rolling Stone titled The Death of Richard Nixon, Notes on the Passing of an American Monster. He wrote, quote, if the right people had been in charge of Nixon's funeral, his casket would have been launched into one of those open sewage canals that empty into the ocean just south of Los Angeles. He was a swine of a man, and a jabbering dupe of a president. Nixon was so crooked that he needed servants to help him screw his pants on every morning. His body should have been burned in the trash bin. Hunter's journalistic work began to decline in quality around 1974. He went to Africa on the Rolling Stone expense account to cover the rumble in the jungle. 
the world heavyweight boxing match between George Foreman and Muhammad Ali. He missed arguably the greatest sporting event of the century and instead spent the evening getting stoned and drunk in the hotel pool. When a fellow journalist caught up with him later that night and asked about the fight, Hunter replied, What fight? He returned to the US without a story to file. His relationship with the Rolling Stone editor and publisher, Jan Wenner, turned frosty. Unsurprisingly, Hunter's next two assignments for Rolling Stone were cancelled shortly after he began work on them. The first involved Hunter travelling to Vietnam in 1975 to report on the fall of Saigon, and the second was a plan to cover the 1976 presidential elections. Wenner pulled the funding on both opportunities, and the widely accepted reason behind the cancelled deals is that Wenner lost trust in Hunter. In a 2017 interview, the legendary editor revealed that by the 1970s, it was clear Hunter had, quote, let his talent slip. Around the same time, Hunter's wife Sandy discovered his infidelities, and their marriage began to fall apart. Their arguments would reach frightening levels of intensity. The couple's only son, Juan, a teenager at the time, remembered how Hunter's rage was so gargantuan that Sandy would often have to call the police for assistance. But by the time the cops drove out to Owl Farm, Hunter, a master manipulator, would meet the officers at the door and appeal to them, man to man, saying his wife had had too much to drink and was overreacting. All was fine in the Thompson household, he assured, until it wasn't. When Sandy finally moved out with Juan, it was with a police escort. Hunter burned her stuff in the front yard. The divorce was finalised in 1980, right in time for Hunter to take on Hollywood. Where the Buffalo Room was a semi-biographical comedy loosely based on Hunter's various journalistic exploits, starring Bill Murray as Hunter. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, the legendary outlaw journalist. Bill spent as much time with Hunter as he could during production so that he could absorb his mannerisms and speech patterns. After weeks of drug and drink-fueled all-nighter hangout sessions, they became good friends. One night, while hanging out by the pool at the hotel where the cast and crew were staying, Bill and Hunter were challenging each other to a series of one-upmanship contests. Bill bragged that he was a regular Houdini, capable of escaping out of any kind of situation. Hunter called him on his bluff, tied him to a sun lounge, and threw him in the swimming pool. Bill would have drowned had Hunter not pulled him out just in time. Bill later joked that playing Hunter S. Thompson almost killed him. Since his real name was used in the film, Hunter was launched into a whole new level of fame. He was no longer Hunter S. Thompson, published author, or Hunter S. Thompson, gonzo journalist. He was now a celebrity. Where the Buffalo Roam was a well-meaning but ultimately satirical film that assisted in turning Hunter into a caricature. Suddenly, people who had never even read his articles or books knew him from the movie. 
Hunter's celebrity grew so big that Rolling Stone no longer knew what kind of assignments to give to him. Editor Jan Wenner feared that Hunter was too famous to do proper reporting. Wherever he went, he became the story, not just for himself, but other reporters too. Writing was mostly left on the back burner throughout the 1980s. Hunter published articles irregularly with the Rolling Stone, though mostly lived off the money made from the sale of his books and movie rights. He became more reclusive, only venturing out of his beloved Woody Creek for the odd interview or paid appearance. But since his persona had grown so big in the public imagination, Hunter felt he had to live up to the hype of this wild, drug-addled, and half-mad prankster. This pressure led to him turning up to interviews high, drunk, and manic. During an interview with BBC, he said that when he was invited to attend events, he didn't know who they were inviting, the man or the myth. He was no longer sure who he was supposed to be. One day, he confided in Ralph Steadman, saying, quote, I feel real trapped in this life right now if I didn't know I could commit suicide at any moment. If there was any chance Hunter was forgotten about as he slid into middle age and the decade ticked over into the 1990s, the release of the film adaptation of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas pushed him firmly back into the spotlight. Hollywood heartthrob Johnny Depp signed on to play Raoul Duke, the fictional anti-hero protagonist of the story, and Hunter's alter ego. Hunter actually handpicked Johnny. When he met the 35-year-old actor, fresh off the set of Donny Brasco, he was convinced no one else but Johnny could play him. In the period leading up to the shoot, Johnny moved into Hunter's basement, and the two Kentucky natives spent all their time together. Drinking, reading, shooting guns, blowing shit up, and going for meals at Hunter's favourite hangout spot, the Woody Creek Tavern. Their four-month-long cohabitation resulted in a close friendship between the two men, as well as Johnny Depp turning in one of the finest performances of his career. It was one of the most fully developed portrayals of Hunter S. Thompson. While living with Hunter, Johnny stumbled across the unpublished manuscript of The Rum Diary, written back when Hunter was in his 20s and living in Puerto Rico. Johnny convinced him to publish the almost 40-year-old manuscript. Hunter needed the money, so he agreed. Both the release of The Rum Diary and newly printed editions of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas following the film's success introduced Hunter to a whole new generation of readers. He proved to the world he wasn't quite finished yet. The same went for his love life. He married his longtime assistant, Anita Baymark, in 2003. Hunter was 65, Anita was 30 years old. The fact she was less than half his age never bothered her. Anita said, quote, I always loved the company of older men, and Hunter was the most incredible older man I had ever known. Hunter finished his career the same way he began, writing sports journalism. He penned a weekly column titled Hey Rube for ESPN.com. The 80-plus ESPN articles he wrote were compiled into a book published in 2004. It was to be the final addition to his bibliography. Hunter lived life on his own terms, 
and he ended life on his own terms. At about five in the afternoon on February 20, 2005, Anita was preparing Hunter his usual evening breakfast. She noticed he was acting strange, but when she prompted him to open up and talk to her, he ordered her to get out of the room. Anita was shocked. He had never spoken so cruelly to her before. She left the house and drove to the gym. Soon enough, Hunter called her to apologize, pleading with her to return home. However, he still seemed off. Anita heard a funny clicking noise on the other end of the receiver and mistook it for his typing on the typewriter before hanging up. The click sound was actually Hunter loading his 45 caliber handgun. He placed the barrel in his mouth and pulled the trigger. Hunter's son and daughter-in-law found his body. They were in the next room when they heard the shot. In the lead up to his suicide, Hunter had been worn down by the grim combination of advancing age, boredom, a broken leg, a back injury, and hip replacement surgery. He had gone under the knife in the hope of correcting the issues caused by having lived with one leg shorter than the other. Instead, the procedures left him more miserable and less mobile. Hunter left behind a suicide note addressed to Anita and titled, Football Season is Over. It read, quote, No more games. No more bombs. No more walking. No more fun. No more swimming. 67. That is 17 years past 50. 17 more than I needed or wanted. Boring. I'm always bitchy. No fun for anybody. 67. You are getting greedy. Act your old age. Relax. This won't hurt. A couple months after Hunter's death, Johnny Depp bankrolled a private yet elaborate funeral ceremony held in Woody Creek, which involved Hunter's ashes being blown out of a cannon into the sky, followed by a fireworks display, all to the tune of Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky and Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man. Over 200 guests were in attendance, including Ralph Steadman, Democrat George McGovern, TV journalist Charlie Rose, and actors Jack Nicholson, John Cusack, Bill Murray, Benicio Del Toro, and Sean Penn. The following extract comes from the opening passage of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Raoul Duke, the narrator, is in a bright red convertible with his attorney, speeding down the I-15 highway towards Las Vegas. We were somewhere around Barstow on the edge of the desert when the drugs began to take hold. I remember saying something like, I feel a bit lightheaded, maybe you should drive. And suddenly there was a terrible roar all around us and the sky was full of what looked like huge bats, all swooping and screeching and diving around the car, which was going about a hundred miles an hour with the top down to Las Vegas. And a voice was screaming, Holy Jesus, what are these goddamn animals? Then it was quiet again. My attorney had taken his shirt off and was pouring beer on his chest to facilitate the tanning process. What the hell are you yelling about, he muttered, 
staring up at the sun with his eyes closed and covered with wraparound Spanish sunglasses. Never mind, I said. It's your turn to drive. I hit the brakes and aimed the great red shark toward the shoulder of the highway. No point mentioning those bats, I thought. The poor bastard will see them soon enough. It was almost noon, and we still had more than a hundred miles to go. They would be tough miles. Very soon, I knew, we would both be completely twisted. But there was no going back, and no time to rest. We would have to ride it out. Press registration for the fabulous Mint 400 was already underway, and we had to get there by four to claim our soundproof suite. A fashionable sporting magazine in New York had taken care of the reservations. Along with this huge red Chevy convertible we'd just rented, off the lot on the Sunset Strip. And I was, after all, a professional journalist. So I had an obligation to cover the story, for good or ill. The sporting editors had also given me $300 in cash, most of which was already spent on extremely dangerous drugs. The trunk of the car looked like a mobile police narcotics lab. We had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, a salt shaker half full of cocaine, and a whole galaxy of multicoloured uppers, downers, screamers, laughers, and also a quart of tequila, a quart of rum, a case of Budweiser, a pint of raw ether, and two dozen emeralds. All this had been rounded up the night before in a frenzy of high-speed driving all over Los Angeles County, from Topanga to Watts. We picked up everything we could get our hands on. Not that we needed all that for the trip, but once you get locked into a serious drug collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. Thanks for listening to Hollyword. This episode was written and narrated by me, Key Whiskey. Special thanks to my guest, Jared Doyle, for editing the episode and voicing Hunter S. Thompson and any other voices featured throughout. This episode brings us to the end of the first season of Hollyword. I hope to be back with a new season very soon. In the meantime, please visit our website, hollywoodpodcast.com to find show notes, including a list of sources used, and more information. If you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, well, you're already doing it by listening. But if you're feeling extra generous, please rate, review, subscribe, and share. I know you could be listening to a million other podcasts right now, and the fact you're listening to me means more to me than I could adequately express. Join me next season for another dive into the lives of history's greatest storytellers. Good night.